Welcome back to another episode of the Lead with Data podcast with myself, Rena Gami. In addition to being a podcast host, I also lead a business intelligence and data analytics recruitment practice. This is the podcast where I bring you some of the most talented data leaders who have contributed in significant uplift of BI and data analytics capabilities in some of the most progressive organizations across Australia. I want to share the stories of their careers, challenges they faced, and the reality of how the recent pandemic may or may not have impacted their roles and responsibilities in their current organizations. Here's where we get to learn what some of the professionals in this field are doing right now. Welcome back to another episode of Lead with Data. My guest on the show today is Lavinia Gordon. Lavinia has a medical science background and spent the last 20 years across healthcare organizations and transitioned her career across to the data and analytics space. Um, and the show um, today is focused around her career journey and background. And um, I suppose we'll give um, individuals an idea of how they can transfer certain skills that they may have across into the broader data and analytics field, um, what kind of different approaches, you know, what sort of lens these individuals can bring. Um, and then we touch on a few um, different areas such as data ethics, data strategy and data literacy as well. Um, so this is a really interesting episode, a little bit different to my usual ones where we're focused on one particular topic, but we're really talking about the skills that are transferable and the value that this can bring to organisations. Thank you so much, Lavinia, for joining me on the show today. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I think I was really um, interested to, to have somebody with your background on the show because most of the time, I think traditionally, a lot of the guests that I've had up until now have been predominantly, you know, started their careers in some sort of data or, or BI focused capacity. Um, and I think your background is, is really, really interesting because you've come from sort of more of a medical science background. And so, you know, being able to understand your journey, your transition and how you feel that that's really, really helped you in your career will be really good to share um, with the listeners today. So like I do with all my guests, I'll get you to maybe just give us a bit of a background about yourself um, and what your current role is at the moment. Sure. Yep. So I'm currently working in the Chief Digital and Data Office at Bupa APAC. So my role is a much more of a generalist role. I'm working as the operations manager to support the data office. So I support uh, directly the office itself and then the Chief Digital and Data Officer. So my role involves a lot of project management, a lot of stakeholder engagement, uh, quite a bit of reporting and analysis. Um, one of the key areas I'm working on is looking across the digital and data portfolios and how the various initiatives that we have are aligned to our strategy and how they're driving our strategic aims. Um, and really coming into this role, I'm bringing my experience on, you know, and the knowledge of working with broad sets of data, with a lot of previous stakeholder engagement. And so it's really bringing that experience into this quite broad role. Um, and so my background uh, so I was originally trained in, I did physiology and pharmacology, and then I moved on to do a um, master's of research in bioinformatics at the University of York in England. So bioinformatics is, um, so it's really sort of also known as computational biology. It's a, a multidisciplinary study which involves um, biology, um, computer science and statistics. Um, and so I used that and took a junior role at the Cambridge Institute of Medical Research in the UK and then moved across from that to take a role in Melbourne at the Walter Meiser Hall Institute of Medical Research. Um, 
And I, I really sort of stayed in Melbourne ever since. You know, Melbourne is you know a great place to be. It's a great city to live in. And there's, there's such wealth and depth of medical research going on. Um, so I've continued to work in uh, doing analytics for medical research probably for about the last 12, 12 years and then moving into more senior roles and then moving into more strategic projects. Um, and so the jump was really from you know, having such an interest in more of the strategic viewpoint and taking that across into this role with Bupa, which you know, really combines the sort of three areas that I'm most passionate about, which is you know, strategy, healthcare and data. Excellent. So I suppose just going um, back to sort of when you started um, your career, can you give us some examples of some of the the work pieces of work that you were doing um, and how you were able to combine, um, you know, some of your medical sort of science background with being able to provide some insightful analysis, just to give us a bit of a context around the kind of things that you were analysing and, and, you know, presenting on? Yeah, so... Um... So I start, started off in um, medical research, so really with a human aim. So the first group I worked in was uh, diabetes and um, uh, inflammatory diseases lab. Um, and so it's really about analysing human genomic data to try and work out um, you know, what pathways are being activated, how people are responding to, disease, to drug treatment, um, you know, how the disease is progressing. Um, and really, as my career has progressed, it's gone from working solely on human data to um, broaden out working on some uh, models. So chickens, for example, are a fantastic model for craniofacial diseases. So they're used to study how bone structure changes and then try and use that information so we know how a pathway develops or how bone actually forms and use that in children who have uh, craniofacial disorders and try and use this information to say, right, these are the genes we should be targeting. And then I moved on from, from that into a really broad role where I looked at everything from um, cattle to prawn breeding to working with wheat. Um, and, and I think that sort of helped me subsequently because it's just shown that um, you know, no matter what, what you're studying, you know, data fundamentally has a set of characteristics and you can carry that across you know, throughout your career. So that's really helped me to be, to be more of a generalist and to be able to um, move to something new very quickly and you know, and, and study it and learn it and be able to work with it because you're jumping very quickly from sort of different um, research topics. It gives you that skill of being able to write, you know, quickly research it, find out the key parts of information you need, and then how can you then work on this project, you know, and, and have hopefully a successful outcome. Oh, fantastic. And that's really, really fascinating because I think typically some of the things that you've mentioned there, um, I think uh, people like me would, would assume that, you know, that the PhD sort of researchers who are, focusing on particular areas um, would be doing. But I suppose what you're doing is probably another step ahead or maybe more detailed um, analysis of some of the research that they're doing. Is that sort of an accurate interpretation or, or where do you sort of overlap? Because um, I'm just thinking of a friend of mine who's sort of currently doing some, some studies into, you know, type 2 diabetes. So they're more on the PhD side doing a lot of research around some of the possible things that can help and, um, you know, the things that cause it or what they can do to help sort of prevent it or minimise it. Um, they're obviously using sets of data as well. But what do, what the stuff you're doing sounds like it's probably more detailed. Is that kind of where you sort of fitted in? 
So you can be, so with medical research, there's lots of opportunities to be highly specialised. Mm-hmm. So you're following like a single disease of so diabetes, for example, where you're really delving right into it and you're trying to find like a particular pathway because that might be when you're targeting to say, mm-hmm. can we have an improved outcome in patients if we follow up on that particular pathway? So there's a huge amount of research, medical research, where it is highly specialised. Mm-hmm. And, and that's often where the breakthroughs come. And, you know, and the real change is like if you look at, say, cystic fibrosis, you know, that's a very mm-hmm. specific mechanism. Um, and it was researchers who spent, you know, a huge amount of time and efforts targeting that one particular process who were able to come through a breakthrough and, and you know, and, and subsequent um, greater understanding on how cystic fibrosis actually develops. Um, but yeah, my role was ended up being just becoming much broader, which is more in necessity of working with so many different um, stakeholders and different groups, um, and then really trying to take that skill set and, and take it across to all these different areas. So, so I've really been a, more of a jack of all trades so than a particular yeah. master, having worked across all these different areas. But the one thing with that is it does make it an extraordinary, exciting area to mm. be in. You see so many developments, you see so how much progress there is, and it's across so many different areas. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Um, and I suppose from um, your sort of career journey um, and moving from that sort of medical science background, what skills do you feel you've been able to bring across um, and apply into the sort of world of data and analytics? So the first one I would say really is um, a fundamental understanding of the data lifecycle. So, you know, you have a very good awareness of how data is collected, um, things like the consent mechanism. So, you know, obviously with my, I have this interest in ethical use of data. Working in medical research has really highlighted to me how important it is to have informed consent from individuals about how their data is used. And, and that comes back to how do you ask for informed consent? Because if you give someone, you know, a six-page complicated handout, people aren't going to read it. They're just going to sign at the bottom. So, but you want... When you're, you know, the one thing I see with medical research is there's such a strong drive at the moment that consumers are really part of the process. You know, it's not medical research against everyone else. It really is, you know, hand in hand working forward. And, and you can see there's a lot where, um, for example, patients, you know, cancer patients are brought into projects so that you can really talk to them and learn their own experiences. So, you know, you can adapt what you're doing to really, really try and benefit the cancer patient rather than your, your theory of what's going on. You, you work with the individual and bring them on board. And so I see that with consent, you're really trying to work with people who are sharing their data, you know, because this data is mm. benefiting you know, thousands of people. So you're working with them to get that consent process clear. So moving into moving across into this sort of more broader uh, data role, I bring, I bring across that idea that I'm very clear about necessity, the consent and making sure that consumers are on board and they know what we're doing bring in this general awareness of data, so the life cycle, storage, security, privacy, um, you know, how we should be um, being very clear about what we're using the data for. And then just the, just the general things with data, like looking for patterns in the data, um, being able to ask uh, critical questions of it. You know, data, it's always things like you've got the raw data, you have the metadata that describes it. So the raw data might be, um, you know, a, um, customer data and then the metadata will be the locations, the addresses and things like that. So how do you properly use this, you know, to develop a rich data set where you can ask the right questions so that you're really providing optimal customer services by being able to properly address the people that you're working with. So so there's a lot of generic um, ways of working with data that you can bring across and understand. And it means you can sort of get into new projects and get started very quickly because you have you bring this awareness with you. 
Yeah, yeah. And I suppose that sort of analytical mindset, obviously, and, and statistical mindset that you have. And what about from a technical perspective? Are there any technical skills that you um, developed there that you felt were really easy to apply? So, I mean, you know, just using, just throwing out some of the standard ones, you know, the SQL, the modelling skills, things like that. Um, you know, were you, um, you know, able to, uh, you know, bring some of those in? Yes, definitely. And again, because I've, I've had this sort of quite a generalist approach for a long time. So I have some programming knowledge. You know, I have used um, SQL in different uh, arenas. You know, I have some experience in building databases. And it means that you can come in and you know, look at the data architecture and have some some immediate awareness of how the data is flowing and, and you know, where the bottlenecks might be. And that, you know, where, where you can sort of come in and suggest possible solutions to make something flow or be a more effective um, and, you know, if you're reading through someone's code, you know, because I have some experience in programming, I can understand the code to an extent, so I can understand what it's doing. So all of that has given me enough of a background to be able to come in and sort of immediately understand to a fairly good level what's going on. And that means you, that you can immediately contribute to, you know, the development of a project because you can understand, okay, I see what you're trying to do here. You know, this was your bottleneck in, um, you know, you've got really good storage, but the, you know, your compute just isn't, your analytical compute just isn't set up properly. So your delay is trying to get the data from the storage in a secure manner to be able to analyze it or to be able to open it up to more data analysts to analyze, you know, because this is say highly personal data, so it's masked. So, you know, how can we best make it accessible, but still keep the privacy, um, privacy of the data intact. So it definitely does, um, give you the ability to come in and look at much more of a technical process and be able to understand the fundamentals of it. And then you can then start to ask the more complicated questions. Okay, you know, what's, what's the source system? Um, you know, has this data been curated? You know, what's your data quality look like? Things like that. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Um, and in terms of, I suppose, coming from sort of a different industry, and I suspect somewhere like Bupa would have people that come from, you know, both that medical health science background as well as, um, you know, different sort of industries. Do you see any um, sort of different approaches or processes that could be adopted um, by your current area? Yes, absolutely. So um, it is, you know, there's a lot of research where they've shown that the more diverse the team is, the more successful they are. You know, the more highly, the highly performing teams are highly diverse. And that's because you move away from this group think and you're bringing in different perspectives into, you know, into what you're doing. Um, and I think it, it means that you're much more agile in a way because you've got different people very quickly raising any issues that might get stuck because they can see them immediately. It's not you're not all on the same on you know one single scene working through it. You've got people bringing in lots of different points of views. Hmm. So, so, so when I come into into a particular project, I'm bringing um, you know I'm bringing very consumer orientated viewpoints. I'm trying to view you know how will this be how will the consumer see this. Whereas if I work with people who've got you know very deep technical backgrounds, they're more interested in the technical workflow and how effective it will be, um, and will it scale? You know, because we do a lot of um, minimal viable projects just to see how quickly yeah. something will spin up, and they're, they're thinking, okay, you know, this might work fine, but as soon as you open this up to you know a million records, you're going to have issues. So they have their own particular perspective, um, and I think that really helps to have a very successful project and a very um, a product that you would be keen, you would be very happy to show to customers is when you have this diverse team and you know you've covered all the bases. And so that what you're offering isn't just something that's fantastically, you know, technically a piece of, you know, a piece of excellence, just an amazing product. But 
doesn't fulfill everything that the customer wants. So yeah. if you get multiple people on board with different different viewpoints, then you're going to end up with something that's a technically, you know, really good technical system that people people who are hands on in the company will want to work on, and b it's something that the customers will want to interact with and will be happy with, and it, you know it won't be something that they find unintuitive or you know or frustrating and irritating to use. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And I think, um, you know, what you said there is, is a really important um, point because I think a big part of um, this is the whole sort of customer experience, whether it's your internal customer experience, people that are using, um, you know, the, the data or it's the actual, you know, customers directly. So I think, you know, being able to combine those skills um, definitely, you know, just gives a very rounded sort of capability within the team and discussions and ideas that that come through. So yeah, absolutely. Um, and with regards to um, you know, I suppose individuals who come from that medical science background, um, why do you think they thrive in data? So I think it's so fundamentally, um, people bring in some you know some sort of ground rules which are really important to working you know in an organisation. So it's things like. Um, you know, reproducibility of something you set up should be reproducible. And you know, with that becomes reliability and transparency. So you can really understand what you're trying to achieve, you know, with a particular set of data because you can run it again and get the same answers. You can show it to someone else and they can also see this. And, you know, you have sufficient documentation with it that you can hand it off to someone else and they can understand, okay, this is what you're trying to achieve. And I understand how you've got this answer. So this, the aspect of really being, um, this reproducible science is called, you know, it's, it's a it's a massive shift in how science has been carried out, which is to make everything accessible and transparent. So people have that sense of trust in what you're doing and bringing that trust into an organisation is key you know, because organisations really want to be seen as trustworthy. Yeah. You know, so you have you have customers who have confidence in you. And so if you bring that through, you know, right from the fundamentals that everything you do, you know, will be reproducible. Um, and transparent for people to see what you're trying to achieve, you know, that's that's just going to scale up and, and carry on through the organisation. So I think that's one of the main things that people from, a, you know, sort of the medical science background bring in. And the other one would be that um, you're really taught to look critically at the data and to ask, you ask critical questions and really be data-driven in your decision-making. You know, so it's things like um, you're not going to give you know, set of drugs to patients because, you know, your gut feeling is that they'll probably work. Yeah. You're going to give them to patients because you've reviewed all the data and you're confident based on the number of studies you've done and you've calculated the correct sample size, you know, and you've got sufficient statistical evidence underlying it that you say, yes, I'm confident this will change. And that's why you do that. And then bringing this into an organisation, you know, we're going to spend 50 million on this particular project because, you know, we have a minimal viable project which shows that this will be successful. So I think also bringing that sense in of, um, you know, you don't use your gut instinct, you don't just rely, you know, there's so much work that's been done on cognitive biases, you know, what you bring to it. Yeah. You know, along the lines of you hire people who are like you, um, yes. you know, you, <laughs> you gravitate towards particular things, which again is why you need a diverse team to try yeah. and, you know, dilute this. Um, so if you can bring it in and say, okay, we're going to make decisions based solely on the data, then that you know that's one way of trying to eliminate these biases that can come in and then lead to really poor business decisions because you know you've got some you've got the evidence to back up why you've done that particular thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think um I think you've probably answered a lot of the 
the questions that you know some of the um, you know ELT individuals might have, where they've historically been making decisions on on gut feel or um, not being able to have the data accessible. I think you you sort of you know given a really good example of you know if you're producing a drug, are you going to produce it based on gut feel or are you going to produce it based on some real um, you know, data that's there that kind of proves this is going to work or not. And as an individual, you're going to take that drug if, you know, you don't know what research has gone into it just based on someone thinking it's going to work. So I think that's a really, really good um, example. Um, I suppose to, um, and, and, you know, we obviously have a lot of listeners on this, you know, to, to, to potentially hiring managers or organisations who are not necessarily in the medical um, sort of field, do you feel, um, I mean, I can certainly see from the discussions that we've had that your skills can be transferred into any industry. I mean, they might sort of have the view that because you come from that medical science background, um, you know, how relatable or transferable would that be into a non-medical science kind of industry? What would your views or thoughts be on that? So, well, so firstly, I'll get them to have a look at some of the research saying, you know, how much a diverse team, you know, how diverse teams are so successful, you know, and, and there's been lots of different ways of looking at this. So either whether it's just saying, you know, either the gender makeup, um, you know, the ethnic background, you know, or, and then then again, you come to the skill set that people are bringing into it. So some of the best people I've worked with on some of the projects I've, I've been on um, come from, they've got a, a background in sort of pure physics. You know, so so their biological knowledge is pretty slim, um, but they understand the data. You know, and they and they understand when you're asking clear questions of it. So people can upskill in areas. Now you you can you can learn the fundamentals of the biological question you're trying to answer, but they've got the ability to get into the data and you know work on it and and produce some sort of really clear um, visualizations to show. Okay, the, you know this is what we're trying to find out. These are where the problems are. So. I mean, having worked with, you know, people where you're really beginning with a 101 to biology, you know, mm. really starting right from scratch to leading through it, and then seeing how successful the projects have been at the end of it. I mean, that was a that was a good example to me of how someone from a totally different background can come in and be incredibly successful mm. and really produce outstanding work. So, I think what recruiters have to think about is, um, you know, what when in roles that they're advertising, what roles they're recruiting for. You know, what are the sort of key points that they're looking for? And is it something that really requires, um, you know, fundamental domain knowledge? Mm-hmm. Or is it something that you can upskill in? If it's something you can upskill in, what else is that individual bringing that could really enrich role? Um, so I think people just need to be a bit more open. I've seen some really good job ads where people have said, you know, even if you don't think your skill set matches this precisely, you know, apply, um, you know, because we're open to other you know other opportunities and yeah. I think that's what we just really have to start to think about you know what else what else can this individual bring um so I have a colleague who's actually got a heavy statistical background and has now moved into much more of um a cyber security uh area because again he understands so much of the fundamentals mm-hmm. that even though you know his actual cyber knowledge was pretty limited to begin with he can upskill in that but yeah. his voice is so strong that it won't take him very long to upskill, and then he will be a really valuable member of the team. So the, the people who recruited him for that role have seen that, you know, you have this, this wealth of experience. Mm-hmm. You can really critically look at the data and look for flaws in it, you know, and you know how to communicate that to individuals. So even though you don't, you know, tick the other boxes, that is such a powerful skill set to bring to the role 
you know, they they interviewed him, took him on board, mm. and, and you know, I have no doubt that he will just do an outstanding job in that. Yeah. Yeah, brilliant. And I suppose for those who are transitioning from a medical science um, background into more of a data um, or insights kind of role, what could be typical examples of that sort of first sort of role within that space? Where do you feel they could move into sort of that would be a sideways step and not necessarily a step back? Because I think quite often people think that, you know, moving into a slightly different area, they need to almost take a step back. But I don't necessarily think that's the case. Um, You know, what would be kind of the sideways step that they could move into what would typical titles be for them so there's quite a few roles where you come in as a data scientist but it can be in quite a broad team so you've got the ability to um you know to learn off your teammates so if you're Mm -hmm. not coming into a highly specialized area i think that gives you more flexibility to quickly learn you know and once you're you know the quickest way to learn is to do Mm -hmm. so you know once you're in a role and you've got a task in front of you and you're trying to achieve that you know, you're going to you're going to pick that up so much quicker than if you're just trying to do it by yourself at home all alone. If you've got teammates that you can bounce ideas off, so I really I strongly recommend going into more of a generalist position where you have this opportunity. And now I think the other thing that some people sometimes do wrong when they're trying to move, um, you know, from say a highly um, a highly specialised say medical analytical role into more of a generic data science mm-hmm. role. It's people are poor at communicating what the transferable skills are. So they'll put far too much emphasis on, you know, um, uh, map to patient workflow, you know, to, to transfer data much more quickly, rather than simply emphasizing the key points, which was, you know, the ability to securely share confidential personal data, you know, in a, in a, in a reproducible manner. So that's something that another organization can pick up and work with. Mm-hmm. But if you make it far too specialized, then it's difficult for recruiters to see, okay, you have those transferable skills. So sometimes I think you really just need to really spell out, and you know, this is what I, these are the skill sets I have and move away from, you know, like it's really easy for me to cling on to, you know, some of the publications I've got, you know, because I put a lot of effort into them, mm-hmm. but they're highly specialized. And the, so the details of that is not relevant to what I'm doing now. But the fundamentals, you know, working with large, you know, massive data sets, mm-hmm. um, you know, being able to have something that's uh, reproducible, you know, that people can really see what you've done. That's what an organization is yeah. interested in. They don't really want the sort of nitty gritty of what the particular project was about. They want the overarching, OK, this is a skill I've honed and published so I can show you I've got it and I can bring this skill set across with me into a new role. Fantastic. Yeah. And I think that's um, that's something that, you know, I regularly talk to potential applicants about is talk more about the skill and the approach um, and the, the methodologies that you've used as opposed to the specialised sort of terminology that might be specific to what you were doing. Because, yeah, I think, like you said, a lot of that is um, it just kind of gets lost in translation when they go into too much of the specifics or the terminology or the jargon that's specific to that industry. So, Perfect. Thank you for that. Um, and in terms of career highlights, I mean, you've had a really interesting sort of career. So could you share maybe, you know, a couple of your kind of key career highlights that you're really proud of? So the the last group I was with um, was really focused on working on cancers that are responding poorly to treatment. Also rare, rare cancers. Um, where, you know, we would have patients referred to us who've gone through a huge amount of other treatment and nothing was really working. You know, they, you know, sort of heading towards palliative care. And we were able to, um, 
work out a better course of action to treat their cancer. And the point, like one success story we had, someone went from pretty much palliative care to back at work. You know, they felt healthy yeah. enough to be back at work. So, you know, something like that, you know, you just leap out of bed in the morning oh. for work like that. So, so the team I worked in there, you know, we had a, a lab-based team and then we had an analytical team. And so what we were really involved in was, was just trying to get everything um, as rapid as possible and as perfectly curated as possible. So we could just hand off to um, the consult- consulting oncologists just the absolute key points, you know, because if you look at the human genome, <clears throat> you know, it's a huge amount of information, you know, 20 odd thousand genes, um, you know, millions of pathways and processes. And so that's just far too much to delve through. So what we aim to do was to set up an analytical workflow where we could, you know, process the data in such a way we could come up with a highly curated, like these are the key points you need to look at. Give this off to the consulting oncologist who really knows the cancer and then they know what to act on. And so, you know, a huge amount of effort was spent just trying to get this to be as rapid as possible. Mm-hmm. So if you have someone very poorly, you can't say, I'll get you the results in six months. That's not going to be, you know, you want, it's like, right, I'm going to work on this in a week. We'll get yeah. you the results. So <clears throat> that was that was a really fantastic area to work in because you can, you can see the tangible results. Yeah. Um, and then when I'm sort of look at my role now, the area that I'm sort of really happy with that, you know, has been really um, taken on board by Bupa is um, having this real heavy focus on the ethical use of data. So, you know, we have we have plenty of processes in place, but it's really been a, a way of sort of saying right from the ground up, everyone needs to think, <clears throat> um, put an ethical lens on the data that they're using, you know, and, and everything you do, you should be asking, am I doing the right thing by the customer for this? You know, yeah. we want, we should be treating their data how customers expect us to treat their data. Not, you know, it comes back to, you know, just because we can, you know, should we do it? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and that's really just been a way of, of saying, okay, there's different ways that we can help people who are working with data to think about how they're using this data, giving them an ethical framework so when they're carrying out large customer-orientated projects, they can really think about um, are there any areas in this where there might be some bias that I'm introducing? You know, am I possibly discriminating against any of our customer base? Um, is there any case where I'm not using the data how I should be using the data? Things like that. Because it's very easy to say, you know, I've got all this data. You can just ask millions of questions. I'll just group a whole load together. Yeah. But it's necessarily the right thing to do. And so it's to you know, sort of put this framework in to just say, um, you know, and, and it's really been, um, we had a fantastic opportunity to work with the Open Data Institute in London. Um, you know, so, so they're based in London, but they do a lot of global work. Yeah. Um, they work with you know a number of big financial organizations to say, okay, are you doing the right thing by your data? You know, we went through one of their programs and it was really eye-opening to see A, how much interest there was in really learning about this and beginning to think about this uh, you know, in a much more in-depth manner. Um, and then how we can try and make that more operational within the organization. So instead of just simply saying, you know, there's a 50-page document on the internet, go and read it when you've got some time. How can we set it up so it's something that people just you know, do as a day-to-day process and it just becomes something that is, you know, weaved into your general processes. That yeah. That's what you Excellent. And with data ethics, I know that's a whole a whole new topic um, that, that would be great to explore at, at some point. But on a high level, I mean, you know, being able to um, have a team or, or, you know, have culture within an organisation where it's something that people are aware of, what would you say could be, you know, two or three of the key things that individuals could keep in mind when, 
sort of considering data, even if they haven't got a full framework in place or if they're starting to think about putting a proper framework in place? So one one good point is um, uh, just because maybe it's not illegal, it doesn't mean you should be doing it. You know, yeah. so we see a lot with social media companies where, you know, they've collected a huge amount of data and, and, and they've got consent to do it. You know, so you think about if you sign, sign up, say, for a Facebook account, you get consent. Yeah. You know, you get consent to share your data. So, so there's been this sort of um, uh, sort of consent paradox where companies have viewed that because I've got consent to the data, I can do what I like with it. Right. Which isn't, you know, that's not, um, it's not acceptable. You know, a lot of the things that, um, you know, Cambridge Analytica handles the biggest one. Uh, it started off as not an illegal process that they were doing because they had consent to the data, but it just, it was such a slippery slope. <clears throat> and then, you know, it just, it just completely blew up. So, one thing I would say is, you know, legality should be like the, the <laughs> highest bar. You know, it, you know, we should be working way below that in terms of how you're treating data. So I think that's something people have to think about. Um, you know, and just because some other company is doing it, maybe making a lot of money, mm -hmm. is that something your company wants to be doing? You know, do you would you be prepared to stand up to your customers and say, this is how I'm treating your data? You know, you gave it, you gave us all this, or we were able to collect all this, perhaps without you knowing. Yeah. Um, and now we're, we're now we're doing these different experiments with it. So um, I think you do have to put yourself regularly in the customer's shoes and say, you know, would you be happy to share your data uh, and have it, you know, and used in these processes um, uh, and and convey this to customers so they're clear that you know their data is not going to be sold. It's not. It's going to be disposed of appropriately when you finish with it. Um, you know, you're not going to collect any more data than you need. Things like that. So mm -hmm. I think there is a lot. There's a lot to be said for, and we're seeing it in with Booper where there's a big, there's a really big focus on everyone within the business being customer focused. So it's not just frontline staff, <clears throat> it's anyone within the business thinking, okay, is this the right thing for the customer? You know, am I doing something that's going to improve the customer experience? And I think that's that's something that a lot of companies could take on board and then how they're treat how they're interacting, how they're treating data. You know, is it the right thing for the customer? Yeah, yeah. And I think it's got to be something that um the organization as a whole is committing to do because otherwise what you find is you find the divide between the the parts of the business that are commercial um prof, you know wanting to look at driving revenue versus the ones who are you know customer first um let's look at that because we can still drive the revenue but it's just about you know making sure the company or the organization has um you know has an agenda to um, drive that, I think, across the business, because I think that's kind of where it becomes a little bit like you say, you know, is it illegal to do, but we can make a lot of money out of it and the customer has technically given us permission to use their data whilst they don't know what it's being used for, or do we, you know, get permission to do this further so we can drive revenue through it because they've actually given us the permission. I think it's just trying to, you know, uh, find you know, set the ground rules um, or, or some frameworks around how that's how that's used. So it's a really interesting one, I think, and one that people will try to, um, you know, make their own rules around as well. You know, until there is some sort of policing around it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you made a really good point there about you know you've got you've got conflicting forces in an organisation. You know, you have that drive for profit. Um, you know, which maybe I don't see didn't see so much in my you know my academia academic experience is not there's not such a push for profit but of course you have that with much more within corporations mm. and so you have to have that line behind um you know we could do we could do this 
which would bring in a lot of revenue, but it's it's got an unsavory aspect to it. Yes. Um, so you know, have to be clear about what well, you know. What we have to sort of come to some other arrangement where um, you know perhaps we'll contact a small group of customers and say, you know, we could there's a potential where we could do this, which would lead to a um, more optimal customer experience for you. But we want clarity in that you're happy to give us. You know, you've already consented with data, but we're now going to use it in this context. Are you happy for that? And I think you know, as long as you have that transparency, uh, you know, clear communication. People always stress how important communication is. Then I think um, you know you can work with these things. But yes, it is always um, reining in people. I mean, you always hear about this with um, you know a lot of the banks where they've had rogue entities who've gone off yeah. and done something unethical because it's brought in a huge amount of money. Um, you know, you've, you've got to sort of rein in that aspect and say, I know, I know we have to have a profit in order to survive, but it's got to be done in an ethical manner. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and I think that goes hand in hand with the, the consent piece as well, because I think if people are unaware of what their information is being used for, they're most likely to say at now, because people are so much more aware of it, to say, actually, no, I don't consent. Whereas if there was more transparency around what it's being used for, people would more likely tick the things that they're happy for their information to be used for, therefore resulting in data being used and being captured for the right things I suppose if that makes sense so I think it actually goes hand in hand as well um yeah, you kind of yeah. lose a lot of people as well in that process so excellent um and the other there was a couple of other things I know you were really passionate about as well was data strategy and data literacy and I know we've talked a little bit about that in here in terms of driving that but you know share, share your um kind of passion around why you feel these are kind of key things as well um so I find some of the data strategy is fascinating you know, so obviously we, we're working on one um, and I recently completed a course uh, looking at a more of uh, a generalized aspect of data strategy. And that really highlighted to me that you know, have so many components of the data strategy, like what sort of, um, you know, computes, uh, what's your what's your data architecture look like? You know, what's your data quality framework? You know, how strong is your data governance and all this? But all of these aspects will fall apart if you don't have your change management right. Because, mm. it's, you know, this, it's all people based. Um, and if you don't do the right thing by, you know, bringing people on board at a very early stage, getting their opinions, it, it, everything will fall over. It doesn't matter if you've got, you know, the latest cloud computing infrastructure, you know, you've hired 100 fantastic software engineers. If you don't have the appropriate change management process in place, then it'll all tip over. So having looked at a number of data strategies that other organizations have done as we've been working on our own, I find it, I find that really fascinating how, you know, the, the, again, the clarity of communication, bringing people on board, conveying what's going on, um, you know, making sure that anyone whose um, projects might be impacted, you know, that there are clear discussions with them and that you're taking their, how people feel about their work into account. So I found, I found that a really interesting area and how people still embark on big data strategies, but then neglect the whole bringing the people along. There was a really good quote from someone about, you know, leaders who charge along too fast will turn around. There's no one behind them because they've <laughs> yes. been so focused on just trying to get something done that they haven't made any effort to bring their team with them. And you know, so things are just going to fall over. Then you know, you really do have to think about people being your most important asset. Yeah. Um, and then for the data literacy, you know, so we have a big program um, to help internal upskilling. You know, so Booper's very supportive of continuous development. Um, you know, and, and continually educating and training. And so I've, I've been really interested in trying to look at the different levels of that. You know, so if you have someone who comes in, who say um, a machine learning engineer, so, you know, highly skilled, 
already got a strong skill set what can we offer them internally so they can still feel they're developing mm. um you know get some sort of recognized certification you know so we do a lot of work with azure you know to offer these certifications to them so that's one level but then you want people um you know who's still interacting with data but haven't got that kind of background to feel that they can have some sort of upskill as well so what can you offer to um you know to say again so the frontline staff so that they they have some way of getting involved and it might open up a new interest for them. They might decide, you know, this is something that really fascinates me. And then you can open up a different pathway to them and say, right, you know, here's, here's the introductory. And then we have the intermediate and then we have the expert. And we have all of these um, training courses available internally. And, you, and we've, you know, clarified we've got support from your team leaders so that you have time to do this. So, you, you know, you have the opportunity for your own sort of personal development. So I've been looking a lot of that within the organization. Um, and I like the way it's sort of open to everyone, you know, making it accessible. Um, yeah. You know, so, so you, you know, you change the language you use, you change the sort of complexity depending on what people's backgrounds are, but you make it in such a way that they have the opportunity to sort of up, uplift themselves to the level they want to be at. Yeah. Um, you know, so to help people, help people understand the, you know, the sort of the key term for it is democratizing data, where you're making this accessible to a much broader range of people. And then again, you have this thing where you have this diverse background that's contributing to the decisions you're making. So, you know, really you're making better decisions because you've got more voices coming in. And it, and it sort of helps with the um, <clears throat> the possibility of discriminating against certain groups because hopefully you've got their voices in the room. Yeah. Um, you know, so, so you're eliminating that. So I'm really keen about um, working on that and, and trying to make it so it's not sort of some magic box, you know, where mystical things happen. It's something that's really open to everyone and people feel confident that they can step in no matter what level they're at and, you know, and upskill to something. So they they better understand the dashboard they're looking at or they create their own dashboard. You know, so depending on sort of the level they want to be at, they've got the, the skills to achieve that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think um, I think it, it's also become really, really apparent the more I've learned about this space is that it doesn't matter where you are in the organisation everybody inputs into the information that ultimately that you know you you and your teams are using to analyze the information so whether it's you know your customer service call center staff whether it's somebody who's processing something in the back end in a warehouse for example everything that's going on um, is being captured and and so i think everybody does play actually quite a critical role in how accurate the data that's been captured is because there could be things that they're not putting in or they're not talking about that could actually impact and make um you know help you make and provide better insights for decision making um if you know and they understand their role in what that data is so i think it's you know a big part of that is just um making people understand and show them the contribution that they're making um, yeah that, that's a really good point so like one thing would be frontline staff collecting information on diversity from customers we have. So, so you need to be very careful with this because this is you know, highly personal information. But if mm -hmm. we have a view of the diversity of our customer base, we can make sure that every product we're offering covers our customer base. So we're not missing out a group or we're not making something, you know, we've done a lot of work recently on the accessibility. You know, so, uh, you know, if you've got an HE role trying to get in touch with Booper, what's the best way for them to do it? You know, mm -hmm. they, you, you know, you've got a lot of uh, elderly people who are not technologically savvy and so don't want to have some complicated system where they have to log on 
in multiple passwords and get and get through. They need something else that's accessible but also secure to them. So if we if we can collect this information from you know on the diversity of our customers, which would be from the frontline staff, and collect it in an appropriate way and it's you know and it's stored and, and looked after appropriately, we can then use it to make sure that we're providing the best customer experience. We are providing accessible mechanisms. You know, we know we have people say hearing impaired, what are we offering them mm-hmm. so they can still have a, a good customer experience with us. So, yeah, so it's important information to collect, but it's awareness throughout the organisation of how to treat it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. I think, um, you know, we talked about some really interesting stuff. I think I'm really keen, um, just before we sort of wrap up, to hear about maybe um, your um, your views and, and understanding of sort of future developments that you see sort of within health and data um, in terms of things that you're sort of seeing in the market at the moment. So I think the biggest shift, so we've really seen this with the pandemic. So, you know, we went we went almost overnight to um, so much having to be remote or, you know, or, or over the internet or something. And so, you know, I know um, the Peter McCallum Cancer Institute saw a huge surge in telehealth. I think it was something like a 400% rise in telehealth. Um, and what the really interesting thing is that as things have opened up, that demand is still there. People like it um, and it's been successful. And so it's shown us that, you know, technology can step up very quickly to achieve achieve these things. And it's shown us that um, well, it's really highlighted some of the um, areas of neglect. So, you know, if you live 100 kilometers away from, you know, a medical center where you're getting treatment, if you have some opportunity for remote consultations rather than having to come in, you know, or find accommodation, pay for parking, which, you know, things like that, it really, you know, costs can really add up then that's something that healthcare organisations should be looking to facilitate. So, um, you know, so this this whole thing about providing very high quality services remotely is really, you know, really took off during the pandemic. And it's something that we're still running with. Um, you know, what can we provide? Um, you know, and then, it, and then it sort of opens it up globally. OK, you know, you know, you're out in the jungle or something. So you, you don't have this accessibility. What can we offer? Mm-hmm. You know, what can we what can we showcase that works for us, you know, in in Australia? But then we could transplant it across and we can offer it to another organisation who's perhaps working in less developed countries and they can take it. So it's, you know, a huge opportunity. Um, and then sort of continuing from this idea of remote is um, collecting data from wearables. So that's the other area that's really soaring. So <clears throat> people are quite comfortable now with the idea of having a smartwatch um, and being able to collect information on that. And then the, the way that information can be used and the confidence we have in the quality of the data that's being collected and then how how it really can be used you know for some monitoring some quite chronic health conditions mm. for example i mean heart arrhythmias is the, is the big area where yeah. people can remotely monitor on this if we could really build on that and say okay we have a vulnerable group of the population um you know perhaps they've got blood pressure is- issues rather than making them come in to see their gp every week how can we remotely monitor this and then flag it with them okay they you know you do have a serious we're concerned about your health. We would like you to come in and see. So, the, the appropriate ways for you know an organisation that such as you know a healthcare insurer to work with healthcare providers to properly use this data to really you know as we you know our thing is we want people to have happier, healthier lives. How can we best use this data for the benefit of the customer? So, I, you know, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of work in this area, and you know some things really soared ahead, like the cardiac arrhythmia work. So, you know, we have processes in place where this is being very effective with particular cohorts. 
but then how can we broaden this out to other areas where people would really benefit from regular monitoring and then some sort of way of alerting them when we say, okay, you know, there's, there's been some shift in your health, it would be for your benefit to, you know, to go and make an appointment with your doctor and talk to your doctor. So I think those are the, the areas we've always seen very quick surges, but where the, the potential future benefits, and again, really for the customer and helping people manage these conditions, you know, is just endless. There's just so much potential for it. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for that. Um, as I said, really, really interesting. And I think it will be really good for the listeners, uh, particularly because, we, you know, we, we do, I mean, even as recruiters, we come across a lot of people with the medical science sort of backgrounds who are wanting to transition in. Um, and whilst we can sort of see the skills that are transferable, I think it even this helps, you know, people like me to be able to um, drive that with clients who we're hiring for to get them to look at different things and the skill sets that you can bring. So, you know, that's really, really interesting as well. But thank you so much for your time, Lavinia. I think it's been great. Now, um, I always ask the guests as well, if somebody's listening and they wanted to reach out to you, they had any questions about whether they're transitioning into this, um, you know, into more of a broader data role or um, they had any questions about anything we've discussed, are you happy for them to connect with you on LinkedIn? Yeah, sure, absolutely. So I do get, um, I usually get questions from more sort of junior staff. So often people who finish a PhD and then decide that, you know, a full career in research isn't for them and what's available. And I think there's more effort being made by some of the um, organisations, so the sort of the junior um, graduate organisations to try and show people the breadth of careers that are possible, Um, you know, and they'll often get people in to speak again to share how they moved across. So I think yeah, you know, education's great, spreading the message to as many people as possible that, you know, changing career is, you know, it's a very acceptable thing. You don't have to just start in one and then finish in that 50 years later. You know, the world's your oyster. So I'm more than happy to um, to, to talk to anyone who contacts me on through, say, LinkedIn. Fantastic. And I think, you know, you're a great example of, of just that and, and how you sort of progressed and gone into leadership roles. So no, thank you very much for that. Thank you. It was a pleasure.